Once more, the sun has set. The stars have come out, and the divine order of the universe continues its celestial dance. Hi, this is Stellar Stories, and I'm Jack Bastin. Come on in and take a listen. Right now, I'm talking about the concept of divine order. There's some regularity to this old universe of ours. Day becomes night, becomes day. Summer becomes fall, becomes winter, becomes spring, becomes summer again. Our universe doesn't appear chaotic. There's order, and there are laws. Like the law that for every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. Or that the planets move in predictable orbits. Or that a convincing argument must be comprised of three points. As a human being, perceiving order in the world has got to be one of my favorite activities. I love it. And being able to perceive what actions cause what reactions is, you know, helpful for acquiring knowledge. That statement almost goes without saying. It's a basic fundamental concept. Nonetheless, putting a concept, even a basic one, into the structure of language orders the concept. Language helps one understand the concept, and language helps convey that concept. An example of this is right now, because making a podcast, I am trying to use language to convey my thoughts. I do have a point for bringing this all up. In part, I wanted to give the reminder that ideas can be different in different cultures. So when we approach an ancient culture, it's nice to remember that a basic, fundamental concept, like what one thinks of as order, can be unfamiliar from what we might think of as order. Depending upon certain fundamental concepts, one of them being order, different cultures will make sense of the universe in different ways. I've been doing some reading, and I kind of like this term, sense-making system. Science is a popular sense-making system. Religion is another. Mythology is one that's important to this podcast's heart. These systems, science, religion, mythology, they're all just blanket terms for systems which manifest in different ways. Religion in one culture can be quite different from religion in another culture, just as religion today is quite dissimilar from religion a thousand years ago. Religion is just a blanket term that can concisely include thousands of diverse systems. For this episode, I will be talking about the sense-making system of astrology. This is the part where, if I were a professor, I'd write it out on the chalkboard. A-S-T-R-O-L-O-G-Y, underline. And then I'd ask, now, can anyone tell me what astrology is? Ooh, me, me. Me. Astrology is the study of how celestial planets affect human life. Astrology is another blanket term for a system which manifests in different ways, at different times, in different cultures. At the root of the sense-making system is the idea that some universal order connects the sky and the earth. Just as the sky's movements tell time and foretell the seasons, in astrology, so too does the sky either foretell or directly affect human events. Those who would wish to understand history 
would benefit from an appreciation of astrology. As I've heard it put, astrology is present in the throne room of every pre-17th century culture. Astrology is where Aaron Burr always wanted to be, in the room where decision-making happens. First off, before getting into astrological history, I have to address all the Capricorns in the audience. These past couple weeks, I've been researching astrology. I use the internet, but even offline, many of the articles I read include something like, Scientists do not believe that human life is affected by the movements of celestial bodies. While nothing beats faulty generalizations when doing research, personally, I get it. I recently found out that being a Cancer, I'm empathetic, so I get it. Nonetheless, being a Cancer and thus empathetic, I believe it is beneficial to be empathetic when approaching a culturally foreign concept. If you can find justification or some foothold upon which you could base your own belief in some foreign concept, you might be more receptive to said foreign concept. Thus, I present my straw man argument rant. People who believe human life isn't affected by celestial bodies probably haven't heard of the sun. You know, that celestial body which practically schedules every human interaction ever. There are so many human bodily functions affected by the sun, not just our circadian rhythm. We also feel energized when seeing the sun. And we get seasonal affective disorder, or sad, if we don't spend enough time in the sun's light. So, that's one celestial body which is kind of significant, but actually, my first thought when encountering such disdain for astrology was, people who believe human life isn't affected by celestial bodies probably haven't heard of menstruation, also known as a woman's moon cycle, you know, how most people refer to it. Besides the obvious periodic nature of menstruation, as it periodically occurs with every moon cycle, I have read the abstracts of a couple papers on this, and a statistically significant number of women have their period around the time of the full moon. Furthermore, the movement of other planets does affect our planet's weather, and is taken into account in meteorology. The gravity of the planets Venus and Jupiter affects our planet's climate cycles. I'm not a meteorologist. This concept comes from an article titled Empirical Evidence for Stability of the 405-Kilo-Year Jupiter-Venus Eccentricity Cycle Over Hundreds of Millions of Years. According to the article, Venus and Jupiter's gravitational poles can affect how our planet wobbles. Thereby, those planets affect how much sunlight our planet gets. How much sunlight we get affects our temperature and affects our weather. One more point. In physics, there is no max range of effect for gravity. Wherever you are in the universe, the gravity of every other object in the universe affects you, theoretically. The closer you are to an object or the more mass the object has, the stronger the effect. Nonetheless, according to scientists, every celestial body does affect us. How precisely the gravity of each planet might affect your personality 
is not something I've done the research on, nor is it an aspect of astrology I really want to get into in this episode. For me, the facts which I just expanded upon helped me approach astrology. However, take any particular historical figure who believed in astrology, and it's possible none of those points consciously influenced them. Astrology was a sense-making system. One doesn't have to justify one's belief in a sense-making system. You can just believe in it. But you don't have to justify your belief for your belief to influence your thoughts. And a culture doesn't have to justify its belief for its belief to influence historical events. Influence is my word of choice here, because influence entered our lexicon as an astrological term. Etymologically, influence comes from inflow, that is, the ethereal power flowing in from the stars to affect the destinies of humans. Astrology's influence on humans runs deep through history. In the 14th century, Europe was struck with the Black Death. The Black Death killed millions, perhaps half the population of all of Europe. While active, it could take only a matter of days for a healthy town to be decimated in the Black Death's wake. In 14th century Europe, the greatest assembly of knowledge was at the University of Paris. There, in the pall of the Black Death, scholars came together, and they concluded that, ultimately, the Black Death was caused by the certain positioning of the planets in the heavens. These scholars didn't know about microorganisms. They did, however know the mathematics behind the movement of the planets. So, the scientists of the day took the framework of what they understood about the universe and applied it to the Black Death to try to explain away something to fit into their order of the universe as they understood it. Upon reflection, I will admit that I, earlier, did a very similar thing. I related the concept of astrology to the concept of gravity. Gravity affects me. Gravity is a sciency word. Maybe astrology can be explained through gravity. If it is the case that other planets do affect my personality, if we do live in a universe where it is true that other planets affect my personality, then I have no idea how such an effect would occur. I have no idea how gravity occurs. I know some equations related to gravity, and using the term sounds more credible to me than any other term I could throw at it. I'm merely trying to explain the world through concepts I know. Just as 14th century scholars were unaware of bacteria, there are certainly concepts 21st century scholars are unaware of, and which are misattributed to established concepts. Only over time are we able to come up with new concepts, and we do this by building upon concepts which our predecessors came up with. But note that this idea the idea of building upon the past, or the idea of cultural progression, was not around when Babylonians began practicing astrology. Ancient Babylonian culture did not consider civilization as something which progressed. It, along with several other ancient cultures, believed that history was cyclical. To them, gods had created the earth in some linear timeline, but that occurred outside of the cyclical timeline which our world resides in. If you've read the Wheel of Time series by Robert Jordan, shout out to you all, 
What's up? Call me sometime. You'll recognize the ancient belief that history literally repeats. Events which happen, have happened before, and will happen again when history once more gets to this point in time. A likely inspiration for this belief is the sky. The moon, the sun, the stars, and the seasons are all cyclical. Their patterns repeat in cycles. The same patterns repeat over and over again. Generations come and go. Day becomes night becomes day. People repeat themselves. The stars spin in the sky. If you're an ancient human being, which I know many of my listeners are not, but if you are, and you see these cycles in nature repeat over and over again, then it can be an easy leap to theorize that perhaps the nature of the universe is a cycle. The sky was, of course, a great place to observe cycles in nature, and also Babylonia's most popular place to observe omens for divination. The Babylonian god Marduk had written the position of the stars in the sky. And all it took was an astute scholar to read the omens he'd written. Our tradition of Western astrology can be traced back to ancient Mesopotamia, with Babylonia being a particular source. Babylonia, whose capital was Babylon, was located in what is today modern Iraq. In Babylonia, astrology was sort of a scholarly belief system. An astrologist would observe the sky and publish their analysis of the sky. They also would read the publications of other astrologists and write up commentaries upon those other astrologists' publications. Archaeologists have uncovered libraries chock full of both astrological divinations and also these commentaries upon astrological divinations. One such library was found in what was the ancient Assyrian city of Nineveh. There, the Assyrian king Ashurbanipal collected a library of texts from across Mesopotamia. Nearly half of the Babylonian texts collected there concerned the topic of divination. Archaeologists recovered 746 divinatory tablets. 359 of those concern astronomical phenomena. Many Mesopotamian nations wrote on clay tablets. Though probably not containing as many features or data storage as today's tablets, ha, ha, these tablets retain their data longer. The use of clay means that when a building was burnt to the ground, perhaps like when an invader attempted to destroy a library, that invader actually preserved that knowledge for thousands of years. These Babylonian tablets are all written in a similar fashion. Babylonians constructed divinations using a hypothetical. They used a modus ponens logical statement. That is, if P, then Q. A list of divinations would fill a tablet, each written using such a hypothetical. If omen, then interpretation. I think it's kind of fun to actually hear what these divinations sound like. One such divination goes like this. If Jupiter becomes steady in the morning, then enemy kings will be reconciled. Another divination says, If in springtime the normal sunrise looks sprinkled with blood, 
then there will be battles in the country. Some are a little bit longer and more fun. This one says, If the planet Nibiru drags, then the gods will get angry. Righteousness will be put to shame. Bright things will become dull. Clear things confused. Rains and floods will cease. Grass will be beaten down. All the countries will be thrown into confusion. The gods will not listen to prayers, nor will they accept supplications, nor will they answer the queries of the Haruspices. Look out for that one. To the Babylonians, the planets moving in the sky were representations of their gods. The planet Jupiter was recognized as the Babylonian god Marduk, king of gods. Thus, the divination, if Jupiter becomes steady in the morning, then enemy kings will be reconciled, is a divination based on wordplay. That wordplay is, if the king of gods' planet is steady, then the minds of kings will also be steady, or steady-tempered. We have no evidence to support that this ever occurred. No evidence that when Jupiter was steady, enemy kings were indeed reconciled. Jupiter, I assume, would be steady many mornings over hundreds of years. So, one of those times, one could presumably go find some enemy kings and verify whether they're reconciled or not. Divinations, to a Babylonian, did not require such verification. Many Babylonian divinations are based on wordplay. Some other Babylonian divinations have conditions, the omens of which could never occur. Because of the prevalence of such divinations, scholar Francesca Rockberg suggests that empirical evidence played little to no role in Babylonian astronomical divinations. Instead, the power behind astronomical divinations was the power of words. Words have power. That's a fact. In our culture, words have power. Besides words' ability to hold meaning or sway people's minds, we also have curse words. These are words we avoid saying. If we wish to take the risk of going to H-E double hockey sticks, then we can take the Lord's name in vain. There are also curse words which resonate so strongly with people that I cannot say them on this podcast. There's the C word, the S word, there are plenty of racial slurs, and then there's also the F-bomb, which itself is wacky. We refer to a word as an incendiary device, capable of destruction when that F-bomb lands. Curse words intensify the ratings of our songs, our games, our movies. Curse words make them explicit, mature, or are. The young unlearned mind is not thought ready, not thought fit, to wield these words of power. It's like a fantasy book. It's awesome. Go us. In ancient Near Eastern cultures, this belief in the power of words is so much more so. Words, written or spoken, are manifest in the world, and where the word is manifest, so too are the ideas associated with the word. I lifted a quote about this off some old scholar's paper. Scott B. Neugel quotes Georges Cartineau, who says, regarding Mesopotamian ideology, quote, since to know and pronounce the name of an object 
instantly endowed it with reality and created power over it, and since the degree of knowledge and consequently of power was strengthened by the tone of voice in which the name was uttered, writing, which was a permanent record of the name, naturally contributed to this power, as did both drawing and sculpture, since both were a means of asserting knowledge of the object and consequently of exercising over it the power which knowledge gave. Unquote. It's not the most fitting quote for what I was talking about, but it talks about the power of words, and it conveys the Mesopotamian belief that there was a strong tie between a thing and a representation of that thing. This was true for words, but, as was mentioned in the quote, this was also true with regard to sculpture. Some of you might be familiar with ancient Near Eastern statues of gods, like those in Egypt or in Mesopotamia. Temples would have a statue of a god, which was the god. The Babylonian god Marduk was the statue which existed in his temple in Babylon. Other gods lived in other cities, and their statues had dedicated staffs of priests to prepare meals for them and to place these meals out in front of them, or to otherwise care for them. The belief that a statue literally was the figure represented wasn't a belief limited to gods. Kings had statues of themselves made and placed in multiple cities, and these statues were the king, and they could watch over ensuring that the king's laws were being upheld. Official business could be done before such a statue, with the king acting as witness. These statues, some of them, are still around. Some are in museums, and some have had their eyes gouged out, perhaps so that the king might not spy on whatever action was being taken before his statue. Civilians also could get statues of themselves made. A popular one was a statue in prayer, and this statue would be placed before the statue of a god, and then that civilian would be always in prayer to that god. A person's representation was the person. A person's name was the person. This belief isn't completely foreign to present-day cultures. There are cultures today where members of the culture don't wish to be photographed, because that photograph would be their likeness, and their likeness would be being taken from them. Back to divination. Just as names were representations of people, the omens of divinations were representations of something. Out in nature, these omens could go unnamed. The omens would exist as unbridled forms of power, and what power the omens represented would remain unknown until given a name. The unknown can be scary. Divination was the practice of providing unknown omens with names. By practicing such divination, Babylonians made the unknown known, and not as scary. This is sort of the reverse engineering of what I was just talking about. As the act of saying a name manifests the power of that name into the universe, so, when there is a power in the universe, it must have a corresponding name which describes its power and which manifested that power. If you can find that name, then you know what power is manifest, and you've successfully made sense of the world.
Yay! There are several Babylonian divinatory arts which do this. Astrology is just one of them. Across all the different practices, divination was the act of taking an omen present in the universe and then interpreting that omen through the structure of language. Language is great, in general, and it's great for providing structure, because it is a structure. Everyone knows what I mean when I say omens, right? We have omens in our culture. There's the omen of finding a penny and picking it up. This omen signifies that all day long you'll have good luck. Or there's the omen of seeing a black cat. This omen might signify that there's been a glitch in the matrix. Just kidding. The proper omen for that is deja vu. Babylonian omens included such occurrences as a mongoose running beneath your legs, or a moon being eclipsed, or a sun being eclipsed, or a specific shape appearing in animal intestines, or many others. These omens were divine messages from the gods. To Babylonians, the universe was the tablet upon which the gods wrote their messages, and humans could interpret these omens into a human comprehensible language. The sky was a good place for these omens. As I've said, Babylonians believed the planets were their gods. Marduk, king of gods, was a statue, and also the planet Jupiter. During the creation of the world, Marduk had given order to the heavens, and had placed each constellation in its proper place. So, when the gods stood in different constellations in the sky, this was in accord with Marduk's original purpose of writing out such a placement of constellations. Gods could use these constellations to give different omens, and thus say different things to the people. This is where the zodiac constellations get their chance to shine. The zodiac constellations were, and are, locations in the sky where the celestial planets can be found. To the ancients, these planets included Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, the Moon, and the Sun. The zodiac is a big strip across the sky. It extends about 10 degrees above and 10 degrees below the path the sun takes through that sky. All the planetary gods hang out on this strip, because all the actual planets are rotating on, like, the same plane around the sun. And in our sky, they all appear on the same line. This line is the zodiac, and Babylonians divided the zodiac into 12 parts. Each of those parts is roughly covered by one of the 12 zodiac constellations. Note, the constellations are related to actual stars, so their shapes don't perfectly divide the sky, but they serve as good enough guides to be able to place the planets. Astrologers can use the zodiac constellations as a map to say Mars is in Aquarius or the Moon is in Gemini. The zodiac house you belong to is what is called your sun sign. Your sun sign corresponds to the zodiac symbol horoscope you read in the newspaper or on your horoscope app. This used to be the constellation which the sun was in on the date when you were born. That's how the zodiac worked 2,000 years ago. However, because the direction the Earth is pointing in rotates one degree every 72 years, the actual constellation the sun is in is no longer taken into account in Western astrology. Instead, the relative relationship between the position of a celestial body and Earth is what's important in modern Western astrology. 
The dates, which correspond to each sun sign, have been fixed in the calendar since the time of Ptolemy, about 1900 years ago. So, in Western astrology, you're considered a Libra if you're born from September 23rd to October 22nd, but the sun is actually transiting through the sign of Libra from approximately October 17th to November 16th. In Western astrology, saying that the sun is in Libra represents the relative position the sun has to the earth, and how the sun in such a relative position affects the earth. The astrology practiced in India, sometimes called Vedic astrology, uses the actual constellations which the planets are in. For the present, I'll just say that one of these astrologies is right, and the other is from a culture stereotypically with less of a focus on right and wrong, and more of a focus on being in harmony with the universe. The zodiac constellations we're familiar with today are the same as those written down in Babylonian tablets circa 1000 BC. Same shape, same stars. There's evidence which suggests, or refutes, that the various zodiac constellations developed separately over the years from 3200 BC to 1000 BC. But we know they all twelve appear together in connection with their constellations in the Babylonian star catalog known as the Mul Apin. Names of Babylonian tablets, like the Mul Apin, come from the first words written on the tablet. Mul is the star designator, and Apin means plow. So, the first thing on this tablet is a description of the constellation known as the plow. Then, numerous other descriptions follow. This tablet, the Mul Apin, was found in that Ashurbanipal library I mentioned earlier, and it is believed to be one copy of a common tablet in usage from circa 1000 BC, though the oldest copy we have is from 687 BC. The twelve zodiac constellations of Babylonia remain in our culture because the Greeks adopted the twelve from Mesopotamia and the Romans adopted the twelve from the Greeks, and Western countries all live in the shadow of the world as it was shaped by the Roman Empire. Now, I want to take a step back. We can maybe count this as taking a break from astrology and a digression into numbers. Particularly, I want to talk about this number 12. Like, what's up with how prevalent 12 is? I mean, come on. I've always been curious of the exact reasoning why. Today, there's a lot of structure in our society, and much of that structure has accumulated as decisions upon decisions have been made over the past thousands of years. Currently, we live by the will of the clock. We have nine-to-five jobs, and we have precise appointments and dates to keep. We schedule our lives with 12 months to a year, 12 hours in a morning, 12 hours in an afternoon. Every date and every event is scheduled, is clocked, by the number 12. Long ago, someone determined that 12 would structure our lives. The number 12 is also popular in our sense-making systems. It's popular in Western religion, mythology, and, as well, astrology. There are 12 Olympian gods, 12 labors of Hercules, 12 tribes of Israel, 12 apostles of Jesus, and 12 zodiac symbols. Numbers, in general, are important in sense-making systems, 
They're crucial for a science, like physics. They can define specific ratios between two concepts. And numbers play sense-making roles in various mythologies. Different mythologies have different significant numbers. In Norse mythology, the number nine shows up a lot. Odin, the Allfather, sacrifices himself to himself by hanging himself for nine days and nine nights. Odin's son, Thor, god of Thursdays, in the last battle of Ragnarok will kill the Midgard serpent, but the serpent's poison will kill Thor after Thor takes nine steps. There's also the magic ring Dropnir, which produces eight identical copies of itself every nine days. Essentially, it multiplies itself by nine. Numbers, or mathematics in general, are a language which we assign a lot of credence to. They're such a precise language. The precision of mathematics as a language makes mathematics a powerful tool. Just like Babylonians assign power to words and verbal languages, so too can power be assigned to numbers and numerical languages. We find curse words evocative today, but they don't sway the mind in the subtle way numbers do. Three is one number we find convincing and which is prevalent. The number's popularity in Ireland is, well, legendary because it shows up a lot in its mythology. There's nothing more Irish than the three-leaf clover, and the number holds sway over the Irish mind. Indeed, I've heard the reason Catholicism was so readily accepted in Ireland was due to the culture's predilection to accept a holy trinity. Today, in Western European cultures, we attach a level of mystique to the number 13, People are suspicious of things the number is attached to. The number affects some people psychologically, and the suspicion about 13 has real-world economic consequences as people avoid doing business or taking flights upon a Friday the 13th. There's also the number pi, which certain individuals in our society seem fit to memorize as if its digits were some holy Buddhist text. Certain individuals, like me, 3.14159265358979323846262. I don't need to laud numbers here. I will, because they're great, but I don't need to. In sense-making systems, we value that which provides structure and aids in meaning. Language is crucial for this, and numbers are the most precise thing we have in a language. Right? I think so. We're going with that. Numbers are the most precise thing in a language. The number 12, the big dozen itself, is a number perfectly apt for providing structure and aiding in meaning. Mathematically speaking, 12 is considered a superior highly composite number, meaning it has a lot of factors. 2, 3, 4, and 6, all cleanly divide into 12. It'd make for a much better numerical base than, say, 10, which we decided to use in our decimal system. If we used a base 12 number system, like some of our ancestors toyed around with, then one-third would not be 0.333 repeating, it would instead be 0.4, and mathematics would be cleaner.
this ease of factorization isn't the only thing 12's got going for it. It also is established. If you're me, and you Google why is 12 an important number, you'll get list upon list of all the places 12 comes up, and zero of the reasoning why that came to be. But the fact that 12 has precedence is part of what makes it used again. When the U.S. was founded, and I believe tell a Supreme Court case in 1970, there was no law that said a jury must consist of 12 jurors. The Seventh Amendment of the Bill of Rights, the right to a trial by jury, just assumes 12 jurors will comprise your jury. That's how juries had worked for the preceding millennium. I tried to find the specific reason why there are 12 jurors to a jury, but I found no king or leader who set out their reasoning in any text which survived. Existing theories, which I could be persuaded to believe, are that there are 12 jurors to a jury because there were 12 apostles to Jesus. There are 12 jurors because you need one juror from each zodiac sign in order that you might represent a proper cross-section of all society. Or, because the number is convenient for making dividing lines and saying, half of the jury believes this, a third of the jury believes that. Any reason for choosing 12 is, nonetheless, supported by the fact that the number is established. Before it started showing up in mythology, or in court, the number 12 was established by the heavens. If the gods weren't telling us to use the number 12, they wouldn't have made 12 the number of moon cycles which fit into a solar year. That is, as it takes 29 and a half days for a full moon to wane and wax back into another full moon, there are always 12 moon cycles per each revolution of the Earth around the sun. This incentivized us to divide our year into 12 months, but we didn't have to have 12 partitions to a solar year. The Mayans didn't. The Mayan calendar had 18 partitions of 20 days each, plus a 5-day partition. 18 chunks of 20 days is a lot better proportioned than 12 chunks of 30 days, but Westerners like 12. However, if the length of a moon cycle was taken into consideration, the moon cycle should not inspire how a civilization divides the year. Take my advice, civilization. The moon cycle is an ill-fit partition. The year is not cleanly divided by the moon cycles. There are instead 12.4 moon cycles in a year. Because of this, Lunar calendars must add an extra month in every couple years, or risk their months not aligning to any particular season. The Hebrew calendar is a lunar calendar. It has one month per lunar cycle. It inserts an extra month every two or three years. The Islamic calendar is also lunar, but it does not insert an extra month. So its months rotate through the solar year, not aligning to any particular season. The standard calendar today, the Gregorian calendar, is not lunar. It's a solar calendar. It repeats with every revolution around the sun, every 365 and a quarter days. So, if you're going to use a solar calendar, you might as well not bother having 12 months, because the months won't align with the moon anyway. 
months are just holdovers left there from when Julius Caesar converted the Roman lunar calendar into a solar calendar. Twelve exists in our timekeeping system also as the base unit for dividing the day into hours. Herodotus, the Greek known as the father of history, relates that Greece adopted the Babylonian time system in order to have 12 hours dividing the day and 12 hours dividing the night. But Herodotus is also called the father of lies. At the time, Babylonians had only 12 hours for both the day and the night, while contemporary Egyptians are Greece's more likely source, as Egyptians did divide the day into 12 hours and the night into 12 hours. There's little reason to believe this division of 12 was done for any reason besides what I've already mentioned. 12 was established as a divisor of time. It divided the year into months. Additionally, the Babylonians had a predilection for these highly composite numbers. They definitely liked 12, because, actually, the Babylonian numeric system used a base 60, aka they used a sexagesimal system, which claims even more factors than 12. It picks up 5 as a factor. 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 10, 12, 15, 20, 30, all cleanly divide into 60. The Babylonians' base of 60 means that they divided their hours by 60, so the Greeks did adopt some aspects of time from the Babylonians, aspects which we still retain. The Babylonian base 60 is where we get 60 minutes to an hour, and where we get 60 seconds to a minute, and also where we get 360 degrees to a circle, though I won't elaborate upon that today. The Romans adopted the Greeks' hourly system in the 3rd century BC, and we, the modern world, got the hourly system from the Romans. Now, there is a reason I've been exploring the number 12. That reason is, I find it fascinating. Wow, usage of the number 12 pervades our lives. Also, because to the Babylonians, this guy was a tablet. Their god Marduk had written that tablet and learned Babylonians could read it. 12 was one number which was written in the sky. And with that number, Babylonians described the divine order of the universe. Twelve ordered the year, and twelve ordered the day. Libra is the constellation which represents divine order. Libra's image is the image of the scales. Two weighing pans hang down from a beam. Weights can be placed in either of these pans, and by doing so, the scales were and are used for measuring or balancing. These scales are, similarly, the symbol of divine justice. In ancient ideology, some rulers lead by divine right. That is, their kingship comes from the gods, and their laws come from the gods. As a side note, Babylonian law texts are actually written just in that same style as their divinations, in that if x then why style. Like, if you take an eye, then an eye shall be taken from you. From this similarity in writing styles, we can imagine that Babylonians perceived of laws and of divinations in the same light. Maybe they both were divine, or they both were law. Back to talking about Libra. 
You can also probably conjure to mind the image of its scales held by some statue of divine justice that you've seen. We get those statues from the Romans. Furthermore, our image and our name for the constellation, we get those from the Romans. Libra is Latin for scales or balance. It appears in the word equilibrium, equa libra, um, which means equal balance. The constellation held unique value to the Roman politically-minded consciousness. Rome had a mythical founding date, and during that mythical founding, the moon was said to be in the sign of Libra. Libra is, of course, a zodiac constellation, though it is the one zodiac constellation which is not an animal. That's because Libra comes from Latin, while the term zodiac comes from Greek. The zo in zodiac means animal, like in zoo or zoology. In the Greek zodiac, Libra was not the scales. It was recognized as the claws of Scorpio. It was technically part of an animal. In Babylon and in Rome, Libra was the scales. We have a speculative date of when Libra as a name became official for the Romans. Some Romans referred to the constellation with a Greek name before and after this time, but it's likely that Libra became the accepted Roman name when Julius Caesar updated the calendar system in 45 BC. At this point, official calendars with Libra marked on them would have been disseminated. Now, we've come to the point in the podcast where I would like to say, let's head outside and take a look at the constellation Libra, but you can't see it. It's easy to locate, though, because it is directly where the sun is. So, if you go outside, wait a couple months, you should be able to spot it on the zodiac belt of the stars. Step one, find that zodiac belt. If the moon's out, and you watch the sunset, then you can try to trace a band across the sky's celestial sphere between those two points. Libra will appear sometime in the night along that band. Unless, like now, the constellation is behind the sun. Libra's shape consists of a triangle and thin lines hanging down from the long side of that triangle. The long side of the triangle is the beam of the scales, and the thin lines are strings from which the weighing pans are suspended. It's a simple constellation. In its origin, probably corresponds to the fact that thousands of years ago, the equinox occurred at the same time the sun was in Libra. In Libra, day and night were in balance. With regard to mythology, there's no Greek or Roman myth where the scales feature with that much prominence. There's an abundance of myths which contain the concept of divine order, though, and I'm going to tell a relevant Babylonian myth. But before that, no fan of mythology could pass by the opportunity to mention the scale's most famous appearance in mythology. It is written, in places where those who know how to use the internet can read, that in the lands of Egypt, where the ancient pharaohs built their pyramids not for the living, but for the dead, that there, when a person passed from this world into the world of death, then their heart was placed upon a scale and weighed to see if the owner was worthy. When an Egyptian was mummified, all their organs were removed. The lungs, the liver, the stomach, and the intestines were placed into canopic jars. The brain was discarded. The heart was removed and then replaced back inside the owner's body. 
the dead had need of their heart. For in death, the heart's owner would find him or herself in the hall of two truths. There would the weight of their sins be measured. Upon one side of the scale, the goddess of justice, Mott, would place her feather, and on the other, the human heart would be placed. If the heart was lighter than the feather, then the human was found to have lived in accordance with divine law. Such a person had their heart returned to them, and they were allowed passage into paradise. If, however, the heart was heavier than the feather, then that heart was devoured by Amit, the crocodilic death god, and the human was doomed to hell. For reference, Mott's feather is an ostrich feather. Ostriches are big birds. They probably have heavier feathers than most, but ornithologists inform me that a typical ostrich feather weighs maybe 5 grams. A human heart, on the other hand, give or take a little depending on how much sin the owners committed, weighs 310 grams. So, if you're an ancient Egyptian, try to lay off the cholesterol or the sin. Where divine order as a concept features most prominently in mythology is in cosmogonic myths. Western cosmogonic myths specifically address the creation of order from chaos. The most, supposedly, well-known cosmogonic myth to come out of Mesopotamia is the Babylonian myth of the Enuma Elish. All the classic scholars know it. The Enuma Elish, like other Babylonian texts, takes its name from the text opening words. Enuma Elish means, win on high. The text of the Enuma Elish is a poem written across seven tablets which survived relatively undamaged and were also found in that library of Ashurbanipal I mentioned earlier. The Enuma Elish tells of how the Babylonian god Marduk became king of the gods, and then what Marduk did with his power. Marduk's the main character, but it takes a while before he gets born. In the very beginning, there's only the god representing fresh water and the god representing salt water. These two are the progenitors of all the other gods. Babylonian cosmology held that the plane upon which Babylonians lived, aka earth, existed between two bodies of water. Above the earth, the firmament of the sky held back the rain, and below the earth was the ocean. The concept that saying something causes that something to manifest underlies the whole telling of the Enuma Elish. When some gods are born, it is said that they are named forth into life. When some god or object does not yet exist, the Enuma Elish says that it is not yet named. Naming something is equivalent to creating something. There's a theory proposed by the classical historian Walter Burkert that in Babylon, creation stories were used as healing incantations. Babylonians saw sickness as a disintegration of the body from order back into chaos. You're already familiar with the fact that Babylonians believed that saying something caused that something to manifest. Thus, a recitation of a myth concerning how chaos became ordered would in turn manifest the idea of chaos becoming ordered. This idea would hopefully manifest within the body of the sick and combat the sickness. To a Babylonian, the sickness was causing the body to revert into chaos. A manifestation of a creation myth would bring order from chaos. 
For similar reasons, Babylonians read the Enuma Elish aloud at every Babylonian New Year's festival. Chanting it would increase the likelihood that both nature and the populace would remain in order for one more year. It's like, every year, the Babylonians renewed an oath with the universe to stay in line. In exchange for maintaining a hospitable, unchaotic universe, Babylonians would continue their worship of Marduk. I wrote a condensed version of the Enuma Elish, but before I read that, I wanted to mention that because language and words are so important to the composition of the original myth, at some parts of my version, I tried to retain a lyrical style or a poetic device, like the device of repetition. If at any point, though, my style seems bad, please pretend that I'm intentionally bad in order to mock the style of the source material. Thank you. And thus, I present my summary. When on high the firmament which holds back the rains was still unnamed, and when below the land which straddles the ocean was also unnamed, then were neither the fresh waters of rain nor the salty waters of ocean restrained. There were no boundaries, just two waters in a universe of ceaseless blue. These waters, which are gods, existed, so they had names. The ocean was Mother Tiamat and the freshwater god was Apsu. When they mixed their waters together, they birthed two constellations, who grew up a lot, had sex, had kids, and then named their kids Sky and Earth. In turn, this pair, Sky and Earth, soon had their own newborns, suckling at an earthen breast. Thence followed more incest and more gods naming more kids into life. But creating kids means creating trouble. At night, no one could sleep. In day, no one could rest, because their kids were clamorous and full of strife. The mother ocean, Tiamat, endured, resigned. They're kids, she thought. Kids fight, they yell, they're rot. But... Father Freshwater Apsu was less inclined to be tolerant or kind. Before Apsu took any action, he called forth Mamu, his advisor, and asked Mamu what he thought. Apsu was like, Hey Mamu, I love you. Haha, <laughs> JK, lol. Have any advice? Then Mamu gives advice. Apsu throws a lot of affection his advisor's way in the source material. His praise comes off strong but maybe that's just how Apsu acts nice. These two, Apsu and Mamu, go and face in the direction of Tiamat, and Apsu's voice is loud toward Tiamat. At night, I find no sleep. In day, I find no rest. Because our kids are clamorous. They fight, they yell, they rot. I'll give them the silence of death. Unless you protest... These words wound over leagues of ocean's waters, slash flesh. So great was Tiamat's size. Eventually, the words reached her, and she raged, like, Whoa, they're kids, so calm your waves, Father Fresh. Kids will be kids. They'll fight. They'll yell. They'll more or less blow. When Mamu heard these sagacious words, he stirred. Not Tiamat, he thought, but he, Mamu, should counsel best. 
He tells Absu, Kill your children, Absu. Mothers and their mercy are absurd. At night you should find sleep. In day you should find rest. So, kill your children, Absu. Mothers and their mercy are absurd. This advice gave Absu sweet bliss. Oh yes, he would follow this advice. And it's canon here that Apsu sits on Mamu's lap and gives him a kiss, though the implications of this are unclear. The god kids, who are clamorous, caught wind of Absu's plan, which, I mean, Absu yelled the plan, so he should have expected the god kids to hear. The god kids did hear, and they rebelled. One god, Ea, who's known for making man and Marduk, came up with an awesome spell. Ea gave Absu what Absu requested. Ea wove sleep over Absu's wide expanse. Now, at night you'll sleep, and in day you'll rest. Forever, he said, and then he slaughtered Absu, who was caught in sleep's trance. This water slaughter accomplished, Ea went and found a box, and he stored Mamu in this box for later. Into the box, Mamu. With Absu's corpse, Ea built a house which just rocks. This house rocks because Marduk was born in it, and Marduk's great. In this house, Ea's wife birthed the greatest child. The great god Marduk in this house was born. The god so great, whose name was Marduk, born here. It's wild. This is the god who eventually resides in Babylon, Marduk, god of Babylon. The text proceeds to describe the glory of Marduk's limbs, a glory which I will not endeavor to confine to words. They are glorious, though. Also, he's got four eyes. One eye points in each of the four directions. He can breathe hot fire and wield seven winds. He's Marduk, god of Babylon. At his whim, storms fill the skies. Unsurprisingly, Marduk's awesome wind powers don't help the existing clamor decline. Tiamat, already a little pissed Ea had killed her spouse, received multiple angry complaints from gods even more sleepless than before. She took action. She decided to raise up Kingu. It was Kingu she decided to raise up. She brought Kingu into her house. This Kingu guy received the Tablet of Destinies, upon which is written the fates of lives and of nations. Oh, also, Tiamat frothed her seas, and made these cool serpents whose veins were filled with poison instead of blood. Thus was Ocean determined to revenge the rains. A couple god kids tried to go against Tiamat, but they only go halfway before complaining she's too loud to go near. They feared her, and so Mighty Marduk leveraged this fear for some sick political gains. He spoke, Our foe hath made cool serpents whose veins are filled not with blood, but poison. They are cool, he states reverentially. But if you all let me dictate your fates, I'll lead you against our mother god. We'll kill her, and we'll put these serpents in boxes. Then, I do promise 
Once this crisis abates, I'll continue to maintain a dictatorship over you all. At this shameless leveraging of fear for gains, the gods were so overjoyed. They cheered and praised him, gleeful of Marduk's future demands. They told him, Your word is command. Speak and it is destroyed. Speak again and it is restored. Your word commands. They said these words and praised him on and on. Eventually, they brought a star before their new lord. Great Marduk commanded destruction, and the star was gone. Great Marduk commanded existence, and the star was restored. At this demonstration, the gods were so amped, they thought Marduk was hardcore, and they readied their steeds for war. Marduk named forth his horses. Come, Killhoof, come, Stamper, come, Bloodmane and Sorer. Those are horse names, and being named, so they came, and he tied their leads upon his belt, or so the text claimed. This whole lead-tying thing is supposed to be v-neat. Ancient chariots were manned by two. One man would attack with some ammo, another would steer. So, this is quite the heroic feat. Great Marduk can both lead his team and wield a bow. And so he did. With a spell on his lips, and his horses tied to his belt, he led the gods to Tiamat. Do note that her lips held only lies. And, upon arrival at her shores, just as the Roman Emperor Caligula one day would, Marduk declared war on the ocean. Our boy, the Duke, gave the following accusation. Kids will be kids. They fight. They yell. Why raise your voice for that? Also, Kingu isn't great, but it was Kingu you raised up. It was Kingu you brought into your house. This is unforgivable. So, let's fight. These words crossed over leagues of ocean swells to reach the foe. So great was her size. Eventually, she flipped out. Fearsome to behold. Good Marduk, evil ocean... Spells and bows, the fight begins. Ding, ding. Marvelous Marduk blasted terrible Tiamat with wind. She swallowed it, though, and billowed back blows. No wind would make her waves subside. Her ocean waves crashed upon his gods. But she spread herself thin, and by Marduk's arrows was her body pinned. Whipping a huge net over her, he mollified her thrashing waves, and the battle turned its tide. Now, in order to distance myself from this violence in the source material, my mind reminds me of an old saying I've heard, and I think this saying applies pretty accurately to what happens next. If you feed a god a fish, he'll bless you with fortune, perhaps turn you into a tree so you might live hundreds of years. But... If you teach a god to fish, then he shall net all fish, capturing and gutting the ocean in twain. From half the ocean's corpse shall he make the sky, that firmament which holds back floods of rain. The other half shall he lay out like intestines to dry. On those remains shall humankind reap their grain.
Marduk, <clears throat> apparently, had been taught how to fish. Because, yeah, it is said Marduk, like a clam, gutted Tiamat. He also snared those snakes whose veins were filled with poison, not blood. He captured Kingu, who thought himself a big shot, but was not, and took the Tablet of Destinies from that dud. Finally, in Babylon, marvelous Marduk went there to stand, proclaiming it, city of cities, the most divine. With tablet firmly in hand, he gave command. He ordered nature, told that sun to shine. To the constellations, he assigned their signs. He gave explicit directions to the moon. You will wax and you will wane, but you get no more than thirty and no less than twenty-nine nights. Understood? It shall take you seven days to fill half the way, and you'll be full on the fifteenth day. By this, Marduk made the calendar, and it was good. By this, Marduk structured nature, also good. And, in this structured way, existed Babylonian society, super good. Your typical Babylonian served both gods above and kings below, with little hope for advancement, variety, or any place to go. For Marduk told his dad to make humans so. He told his dad to make them from Kingu's body, and to have humans live bleak, labor-filled lives. Thus, invoke his names. He's got plenty. Fifty names to exclaim. The wise ones say Marduk without delay. The master to the apprentice explains each name. He creates and destroys with words. Where his name is heard, upon that place, the power of his deeds are conferred. So speak, cry, exclaim, let us all say, Marduk. Let us all invoke his name. Marduk. That's my condensed version. The last tablet and a half of the Enuma Elish lists and explains the 50 names of Marduk. I did not include that part. So, check out the source material if you want to know all the different ways you can invoke Marduk. I think this counts as an example of Babylonian prayer, though invoking Marduk or one of his names seems less like a supplication to or petition of a god, and more like binding the god with words, and forcing the god's associated deeds to manifest. That's what it would be like at the Babylonian New Year. Chanting a description of how nature and how the moon works would have been done to coerce nature and the moon to once more follow the same patterns for one more year. The Enuma Elish would have reminded the people that they were made to labor. And also, the recitation of the Enuma Elish would have eased people's worries. The recitation would have manifested a sense of order and stability in the people gathered. Those people believed that words had the power to manifest ideas. So, I imagine, when they heard the words expressing order, they'd have believed order was around them. They'd have felt that sense of order. It'd be similar when a learned person chanted the Enuma Elish over the sick. They'd invoke Marduk and order. And, you know, the power of belief can be pretty strong. If people believe they're becoming ordered and better, it can help. Words are, and language is, still powerful. 
language remains an essential tool for any of our sense-making systems. Language provides structure and order. Language is the tool by which we describe how we make sense of the world. And language is the lens through which we comprehend the world. I think this raises an interesting question. Like, do we believe in order because we think in language? You know, if language is coloring every description we make, then we cannot help but have order be coloring every description we make. Order influences our every thought, or our every languaged thought. Libra doesn't appear prominently in any Greek or Roman myth, but I've still managed to tell a myth about divine order. And that myth is what order itself was. Our idea of order has changed since the Babylonians. Unlike Babylonians, we don't really believe that order is a two-way street. Using language to describe nature makes us believe nature is in order, but it doesn't make nature believe that it should be in a specific order. That is one historical difference between our ideas of order and how the idea of order was different in ancient Babylonia was what I set out to show you all. So, I'm done. This has been an episode of Stellar Stories. I'm Jack Baston, and I'm going to make shorter episodes in the future. Aye, If I made any factual mistakes, whoops, look for addendums. There are many things I might not know about Babylon. I read through my work, though, and I made sure that I wasn't forcing my ideas onto Babylonians. I think I'm good. If it seems otherwise, or if you uh, believe I made any philosophical mistakes, then those were intentional. Just consider it an exercise in critical thinking. If you liked this episode, please pass it on. An artist is only truly loved when they have a million subscribers. (laughs) 